0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, we're going to spend some time in God's Word. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are in 1 Samuel 17, uh, so you can uh, swipe to that or open it if you've got the old analog version. Uh, but First Samuel 17, and uh, we'll also have it up here if you don't have a Bible with you today, starting at verse 41, 17 verse 41. 1 Samuel 17, 41 says this, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. It's God's word for us today. It is not every Sunday that I get to end our Bible reading with a beheading, but it's special when it is. Well, we are in the, uh, the second week of an eight-week series that we're doing on David. Uh, David, if you don't know, is this major figure uh, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. Uh, and today we're going to look, if you notice when I read the text, we're going to look at what is quite possibly the most familiar story in the entire Bible, right? The story of David and Goliath. Even if you've never been in church before in your entire life, right? Like this is your first Sunday ever in a church, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. But just in case uh, you've been living under a rock for the last 2,000 years of Western history, uh, let me just give you sort of a contemporary example of David and Goliath. All right? I'm so excited. <laughs> so this afternoon, at 3:40, to be specific, <laughs> there is a football game between two teams the Dallas Cowboys, and my beloved Green Bay Packers. All right. Now let's just look at these two teams for a second, all right? One team, the Packers, are from a town of 104,000 people in northeast Wisconsin. The Cowboys are from a metro area of 7 million people. The Packers are owned by their fans. Just average Joes. Working hard, (laughs) investing in something they love. The Cowboys are owned by one billionaire with a larger-than-life personality. According to Forbes, the Cowboys are the number one most valuable team in the NFL. The Packers are just in the middle of the pack at number 13. The Cowboys entered the playoffs as the number one seed, the best record in the NFC. The Packers were all but written off until they made it into the playoffs, the last game of the season, by the skin of their teeth. My friends, this is a David and Goliath story. And I don't know if you noticed in the text, we all know who wins. We all know who wins. The Lord has delivered you into our hands, right? That's what the G on the helmet is for. It's God's team. God's team. God's team. All right, now now all kidding aside, like we do, we love the David and Goliath story, right? We love the David and Goliath story. Like, again, even if you've never been in church, we love the David and Goliath story. Like, like this, this young, upstart, just knocking out this, this cocky giant. Like, we love it. And that actually makes this message really difficult. Because we have this tendency to sort of sentimentalize it then. We have this tendency to sort of just relegate it as a children's story. Or to say, hey, you know, we just love it because it's just sort of part of our American ethos, right? Like, we just love it when the underdog wins. But the reality is there's so much more going on in this text. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see all that's going on in this text. We're going to do it by looking at David in three different lights. We're going to look at David as a child. We're going to look at David as an example. And then we're going to look at David as a type. All right, David as a child, David as an example, and finally, David as a type. All right, so let's get into it, David as a child. If you'd look with me at verses 41 to 44 in our text, it says this, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, The Philistines said to David, come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. All right, so if you'd go back one slide for me, Annie. So so David shows up to fight Goliath, right? David shows up to fight Goliath, and Goliath looks at him, and what happens? It says he disdained him. Goliath looks at David, and he hates him. Why does Goliath hate David? Because he was a youth. Because he was a child. It's fascinating. Goliath doesn't hate David because he's an Israelite. Goliath doesn't hate David because he's going to fight him and try and kill him. Goliath doesn't hate David because he's talking about some other God than he is. No, no, no. Goliath hates David because he's a kid. Why does Goliath hate David for being a kid? Well, listen, I have, I have two small children myself. Um, I don't hate them, okay? Um, but, but I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but kids, children, tend to live in a different reality than the rest of us, right? Parents, you feel me in this, right? Kids tend to live in a different reality than grown folks do, and this is actually what we see in our text. Like, if you were to look at the 40 verses leading up to what I read today, the 40 verses leading up to that are all dominated by Goliath. He is just ever-present throughout the text, that this giant of a man stands up before the Israelite army, and he says, hey, Listen, if I, beat one of your, if I beat your champion, you guys are our slaves. But if you guys beat me, you send a champion who beats me, we'll become your slaves. And from that point on, all of the Israelite army, including King Saul, who was himself a big dude, are terrified of this massive defensive lineman of a man. Over the 40 verses leading up to this, again and again, Goliath taunts them. People can't stop thinking about him. He is the center of the story leading up to this point. He's all people can think about. Their minds and their imaginations are ever-presently focused on him. They're terrified of him. They can't stop thinking about him. But not David. Because David's a kid. He's living in a different reality. David's imagination is captured by something much bigger than a giant. David's imagination is captured by God. He's living in a different reality than everyone else around him. Because he's a child. He's a youth. See, the grown folks, their reality is consumed by Goliath. Everyone's world is shaped by this massive enemy. But to David, Goliath doesn't hardly even seem to be a blip on his radar. I mean, look look at what he says to him, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Like, I love this. David's just like, come at me, homie. Like, are you serious? Dude, you got nothing. Do you know who's standing behind me? The Lord of hosts, the God of the universe. Let's go, bro. Like that's, he's just, he's, let's go. See, I wonder if this is what Jesus was getting at when he said that we should have faith like a child. He said we should have faith like a child. See, as a child, David's imagination is so captured by God. Everything is framed around this idea that God is real and actually doing stuff in this world. And David's whole life is dependent upon that. There's just no other reality for him. But the adults in this story are consumed by the very real threat that Goliath poses to their lives and to their way of life. And see, this happens to us too, right? Like it seems the more grown up we get, the easier it is for Goliath, whatever that is for you, to become the focal point of our life, to become what consumes our imaginations. And the God who actually promises to provide and to deliver us ends up getting pushed more and more to the side. Uh, When I was 16, one of my close friends was diagnosed with leukemia, and uh, and her family uh, couldn't pay her medical bills at all. And uh, I didn't know anything, you know, 16, I didn't know anything about healthcare or HMOs, PPOs, payment plans, nothing like that. But I just knew my friend needed help. And so at 16, I just kind of did what I thought would be helpful. And, uh, and I put together a little concert with uh, my buddies and I. We were all in punk bands, and we put together this little show. And, uh, and I got to work doing that. And, and I talked to the, the concert venue, and they let us rent a hall out for free. Uh, I got some businesses to sponsor it. I got my mom and dad to work the door, which I'm sure they loved. And, uh, and so we... Uh, we put on this show, and we raised a couple thousand bucks that we were able to, to help my friend with as she's going through this. Now, I cannot emphasize enough to you how little I thought about that as a youth. There's just no brain power. I was just like, well, this is just what you do. This was the right thing to do. This is something that Jesus would have me do. Someone's in need, so I'm just going to do it. Off you go. Flash forward to two weeks ago. I'm 31 now. At Church Lander, we hosted a, a hardcore punk show right here, right where you're sitting, believe it or not. It great pit, okay? And, uh, and, uh, and, and I agreed to do this show, right? But as the night came and these kids actually started showing up and I realized I was the only responsible adult in the building, I started freaking out, man. Like, I spent the entire night with an ulcer. Like, I was just like, what's going to happen if someone gets hurt? What if someone steals our stuff? What if someone's doing drugs in our bathroom? Like, what have I done to myself, right? See, This is the difference. As a kid, I was living with a God-dominated reality. As an adult, I slipped into living with a Goliath-dominated reality. And the truth is, some of you are here this morning, you're living with a Goliath-dominated reality. That that's what's present in your imagination. That that's what's building your entire life around. And I don't know what that is, but I think each one of us here has something that we may call a Goliath, Right? The bills, depression, job security, lost loved one, fractured relationships, your kids, your shame, daily stress of life, whatever it is, we live with a Goliath-dominated imagination. But David the child shows us what it looks like to live with a God-dominated imagination. And listen, I'm not talking about being like ignorant or naive about some of the harsher realities of our world. But what this text shows us is that compared to the Lord of hosts, compared to the God who created everything as he spoke it into existence, you're giant. It's not a big deal to him. He can take it down. It's nothing. He's standing behind you. He fights for you. Now, see, if David as a child shows us what it is to live with a God-dominated imagination, What we're going to see next is David, as an example, shows us what it looks like to fight with a God-dominated imagination. What it looks like to fight Goliath with a God-dominated imagination. Look with me at verses 46 to 47. David's talking to Goliath. He says this, "...this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. All right. so there's a few ways that David goes about fighting Goliath, and we're just going to explore them real quick. If you'd go back one slide for me, Andy. If you look at verse 46, the first thing David does, actually, as he heads into battle, is he preaches. He preaches to Goliath, and he preaches to himself, right? He says, the the, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. He's preaching to himself. And you say, well, what is that? What does that mean? I thought just preachers preach. No, 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 Preach to yourself. What that means is you declare the promises of God to your current situation. That's what Goliath is doing. He's preaching to himself. Or not Goliath. David is doing. He's preaching to himself. He's declaring the promises of God to his current situation. And as you face whatever your Goliath is, declare the promises of God in Christ to your current situation. You say, what are you talking about? What does that even look like? All right, well, let's just say you're feeling like really guilty, really full of shame. Say that happens. I I know you all live perfect lives, but let's say you didn't for a moment. Preach to yourself. You say to yourself, hey, okay, I'm feeling guilty, but Jesus went to the cross for me. He died for me. My sins are forgiven. They're wiped clean. I'm good to go. Say you're feeling really tempted. Say, well, hey, Jesus was tempted, and and he's with me in the midst of this, and he promises to, to, to find a way out for me. If you're feeling really lonely or isolated, preach to yourself. Say, hey, Jesus went to the cross, and because of that, I'm welcomed into God's family. I'm brought into his love and into his grace. I'm not alone. If you're feeling depressed or worthless, you preach to yourself. Say, hey, Jesus came for me, that I was worth enough to him, that he would come to this earth, that he would suffer and die for me. If you're feeling intimidated, you're feeling nervous, preach to yourself. Say, the Lord of hosts is with me. God is with me. Jesus will not leave me or forsake me. His spirit is at work. You preach to yourself. And if you've ever, like, if I've ever counseled you pastorally, this is, like, one of the first things I tell you to do. And everyone gives me this look like you're crazy. But I'm telling you, this is what Christian leaders throughout the centuries have done. It's something I do, like, regularly. Uh, When I'm intimidated, nervous with something I have to do, uh, like, for example, I'm just telling you, like, I think, like, a pastor job is weird anyways. I feel like God has just been like, we're going to make it extra crazy for you, buddy. So, like, last night I did a wedding uh, where everyone wore pajamas. Wouldn't have predicted that, right? Uh, and, uh, but this happened like a year ago. Uh, I got asked to do a wedding at a music festival that was three hours away from here. And I was going there. No one there was a Christian. The bride and groom specifically asked me not to talk about Jesus. I talked about Jesus. Uh, and uh, Not up front. I did do it on the side there. Okay, so anyways, but I'm like, I'm driving there, and it's a three-hour drive, and I was like freaking out the whole way there. I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. And so I just preached myself for three hours. I didn't even have music on. I said, God is with me. He's at work here. Jesus says never. he'll never leave me or forsake me. His spirit's already at work. He goes before me. God's already doing stuff there. just had to preach myself again and again and again. Friends, in the face of Goliath, preach yourself. Remind yourself of the promises that you have in Christ Jesus. Second thing you do in fighting Goliath is this. Make merry. Have fun. Laugh. Goof off. I mean, look at what David says. I love this. Uh, No, go back to 46. He says, uh, I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. So first of all, that's awesome, right? But what's he doing? If if you didn't notice this, he's actually directly quoting Goliath. Like just a few verses earlier, Goliath says to him, I'm going to give the dead bodies of the host of you to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And so David's mocking him. He's making fun of Goliath. It's, it's, it's kind of like Goliath says, hey, I'm gonna feed your flesh to the birds of the air. And David's like, I'm gonna feed your flesh to the birds of the air, right? I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you, right? Like, that's what he's saying. He's making merry. He's making fun of Goliath. See, and you may not have thought about this before. But but humor is profound. It's profound. Because what, what humor and merrymaking does in the face of whatever your Goliath is, is it relativizes it. It neutralizes it. That's what humor does. Uh, my, uh, the 16th century theologian, uh, who I just like to call my boy, Martin Luther, uh, put it this way. He said, What other cause do you think that I have for drinking so much strong drink, talking so freely, and making merry so often? except that I wish to mock and harass the devil who is wont to mock and harass me. And so what's Luther saying here? He's saying, listen, like, like the enemy wants to steal the joy I have. The enemy wants to steal the joy that I have in Jesus and the grace that he's given me and the life that he's given me. Well, joke's on him. I'm just going to have that much more fun. I'm rubber, he's glue. Right? I just read a, a story from uh, one of my favorite authors. And, uh, and the author uh, was in... Uh, in Krakow, Poland, and he actually met a survivor of of Auschwitz. And as he's talking with the survivor of Auschwitz, uh, the survivor actually converted to Christianity uh, in the concentration camp during World War II. And uh, the author asked him, like, why did that happen? How did that happen? And the survivor said there was a a Christian who was a fellow inmate of mine there. And this guy had this, like, humor about him. Like, the the Christian hope that he had just sort of expressed itself in, in being funny in Auschwitz. That in the face of the the bleakest of circumstances, this Christian dude was able to transcend that with humor. And see, this is something that actually philosophers talk about, like Kant, Kierkegaard, Berger. they, They call this the incongruity theory. The idea that something's funny because it violates our mental patterns and expectations. That in the face of the gas chambers and execution blocks of Auschwitz, this Christian's hope expressed in humor could transcend that dark reality. The author Osganis puts it like this. Not for one moment was Auschwitz itself ever something to laugh about. But like a flash of lightning or a momentary parting of the clouds, humor lit up a truth that was larger than anything that could happen to the poor prisoners. A truth that even Auschwitz could not censor. The seemingly ironclad world had been punctured for a second. And it could be punctured again once and for all. The ultimate could be seen to trump the immediate, so that the grim horror that was in front of them was not the last word. Heaven relativized Hitler, Himmler, and Herr Haas in the flash of a prisoner's joke. Listen, I know this doesn't sound all that spiritual, but it is. It is. In the face of, of whatever your Goliath is loneliness, fear, anxiety, shame whatever's going on in your life, one of the gifts that God gives us is to laugh. To make merry with our friends. Right? It's, it's not shallow. I don't know if you thought about this. It's not shallow to laugh. What it does is it actually points us to our future hope. To our future hope and our future joy. That one day we'll be with our Savior in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll be laughing there all the time. There's no tears there. There's only Laughter. And so whatever comes our way, whatever Goliaths we face, we can be confident in the hope that we have. We can laugh at what comes our way. And so David, as an example, teaches us to preach to ourselves, teaches us to make merry in the face of Goliath, but most importantly, he teaches us who's really fighting the battle. And see, this is actually really important uh, because the the temptation in a story like this is for me to stop right here. The temptation in a story like this is, is for me to say, all right, is a pump-up speech, all right? So, so whatever your Goliath is, whatever it is that you're facing, you just grab your five smooth stones and your sling, and you just go for it, buddy, and you knock that giant down, and God's going to help you, and that's going to happen. And it's just this pump-up self-help speech. It's baloney. It's nonsense. Here's what I mean. Look again at what David says at the end of verse 47. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Like, I love this. David says the battle is the Lord's. He's going to save us. He's going to deliver us. He's going to give you into our hand. See, in one sense, we've talked about David as, as example, and that's okay to do in one sense. But in a much deeper and much more profound sense, we need to see that we're not David. That we need a David. You're not David. You need a David. We're Israelites. And here's why. We, we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, Philistines, right? Who are these guys that are attacking the nation of Israel? Well, Philistines were no good, man. Uh, they, they were a, a sensual and violent culture. Uh, they, they celebrated an abusive form of sexuality, uh, they practiced incredibly destructive and violent warfare. Uh, their chief god in their pantheon was Baal. Uh, Jesus, actually a few thousand years later, actually references Baal. He calls him Baal Zebub, which literally means the prince of demons. And the Philistines would go and worship this deity by having sex with prostitutes, and then they'd come out and practice uh, just heinous violence against any of the tribes that surrounded them. Here's the thing about the Philistines, though. They're nothing new. Nothing new, man. This is the story of human history. Right? Like, like this is our story that since humanity fell into sin, we've been distorting God's gifts and committing violence against one another and exchanging worship of the Creator for false idols that fuel our darkest passions. And so I don't know what your Goliath is. It could be a sin that you can't shake. Anger, arrogance, gossip, bitterness, lust, selfishness. Apathy towards the needs of others, judgmental spirit, pride. Or maybe your Goliath is fighting to keep your marriage afloat or keep your kids close. Maybe it's a mental illness or a physical illness, financial problems, uncertain future, whatever it is. Whatever your Goliath is, I'm telling you right now, maybe I gave you a little helpful tips in terms of facing it, but just hear this. Whatever your Goliath is, you can't beat it. Can't beat it. You need a David. You need a David. Because in this story, David is is what we call in theological terms a type. Theological term is a type. He's a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of who Jesus is. He's a foreshadowing of who our ultimate hero is. Because what we see in David is this little shepherd boy, a guy who seems weak. But he steps up when it matters the most. He represents his people. He's the champion of his people. The, The word for champion there in Hebrew is literally the word ishabanim. Ishabanim, that literally means the man in between. He's the guy that stands between his people and their enemies. He's the guy that goes between his people and Goliath. And he defeats them. Not in spite of his weakness, but because of it. And so you have a David, you have a David too. Whatever your Goliath is, you have a David too. And he was born in a town called Bethlehem. And he seemed weak and powerless. And in fact, the powers of his day sought to crush him by nailing him to a cross. But it was actually in that moment, in his moment of greatest weakness, that your Savior Jesus won the greatest victory. He won the greatest victory there. Because in that moment, he was your champion, he was your Ish Habanim, he was the man between. He was the man between you and God's wrath against sin. He was the man between you and death. He was the man between you and the devil. He was the man between you and your shame and your guilt and your sin and your brokenness and your Goliath, whatever that is for you. On the cross, Jesus fought for you and he won. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, friends, in, in Jesus Christ you have victory. Whatever's going on in your life, whatever you're facing in Jesus, you have victory. He's the man who's gone between. He's the man who's gone before you, who fights for you, who's with you. And someone says, well, hey, well, how does that work? I don't really get that. That sounds very nice, but what does that actually mean? Uh, well, well, those of you that are Harry Potter fans, uh, you'll get this. We got any Harry Potter fans in here? All right, good. All right, pagans, we'll talk later. All right, so um, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm too. So, Harry Potter fans, uh, if if you've read the books or or, or seen the movies, um, you remember at the end of the the first book, the the first movie. Uh, Harry has this showdown uh, with Voldemort, who's really sort of possessing Professor Quirrell, right? You remember this? All right. And so they're fighting, and Professor Quirrell, possessed by Voldemort, goes up, and like every time he goes to touch Harry, he can't do it, right? Like he's singed, like he's burned, like it hurts. And, uh, and then, you know, the, the fight happens, and they're, and they're doing fine, and then Harry, after the battle, goes and talks to his mentor, Dumbledore, and he says, why, why couldn't he touch me? Why couldn't Voldemort touch me? And Dumbledore says this to him. Your mother died to save you. Love, as powerful as your mother's for you, leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. See, friends, this is what Jesus has done for you. That he's loved you so deeply, that he's given of himself so completely, that he offers you protection both now and Forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came for us. That you're our champion who goes before us. God, I pray for for my friends gathered here that, that whatever they're facing, whatever Goliaths are in their life, we just ask Jesus that they'd see that the victory is in you. That the hope is in you. that there is nothing in this world that can stand between them and you. May that be enough for us, Lord. May we find the victory in you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.